as Gia said in a lovely introduction, I'm going to talk about why we took on England's Ribolos, why a small science charity, that's what the charity I work for at Centre of Life Science is, or a small charity who are um, founded to equip the public to make sense of science and evidence. And we do this by popularising the field of scientific reasoning and responding to bad science and chasing down pseudoscience wherever we see it. So all the things that people have been talking about already today, he said, everybody does so well here, we do bits of that as well and encourage lots of scientists to do it too. So for example, we chase down, as I said, we chase down pseudoscience um, and bad science wherever we see it. And this might be in media frenzies or reports because we see ourselves as people who talk to people who talk to people who talk to other people about science. So we work a lot with intermediary groups, like groups of midwives who are concerned about plasticizers in babies' bottles, and you're getting questions about that. They come to us, and anybody can come to us and ask us the question. So most people these days who aren't working scientists get most of their science information from the media. So we work with the media a lot, and we respond to media frenzies and when the science is getting lost in the stories, and help journalists spoil their writing stories. We also respond to um, pseudoscience and things like uh, product information research. For example, we work with a group of young researchers called the Voice of Young Science, who are a group of early career researchers. I see at least two of them in the room here today. Um, we do things like um, co they, they call up companies and ask them where the evidence is. And they do projects trying to bust the myth of detox, for example. And we call up companies who make things like detox skin brushes and detox capsules and detox hair straighteners and ask where's the science behind that, and then publicise that kind of thing, it's a load of fun. We react to um, statements from single issue campaign groups, be they environmental or um, food banking like that, where there's bad science, we react to those. We do things every year where we look at everything celebrities have said about science during the year, and react to that, and that gets, always gets an awful lot of press, and we love this headline here. We, have trouble describing this project. You say we react to what celebrities say about science. It felt that endures when somebody says something about homeopathy from malaria, for example, and someone that, that gets you know reported everywhere. Now the next person who Googles homeopathy from malaria finds that. But if we react to it as well, can we get the science people to react to it? They'll find our response as well. That takes a lot of time to explain. So we love the fun headline writers came up with this. This is what we do: prop rap gym stars. That's why they get paid a lot more than I do. So. We do an awful lot of light-hearted things like that. And we, everything we do, we do it for more than for serious reasons. It's a lot of fun, usually, tracking down these um, evidences and attacking what celebrities say every year. But we do it because these kind of things get reported and they endure. And we've heard from Reese, we've heard from people today about how people can be very vulnerable to these kind of things and find themselves in a position where we don't know what to believe and we don't know what to listen to. So getting scientists to stand up for science and to get out of the public debate is what we were founded to do in 2002. It's what we've been striving really hard to do for the last nearly 10 years of our lives. To get scientists to make attacking pseudoscience and standing up against bad science their responsibility and their business and giving scientists a civic responsibility to do this. So it was about two years ago in June 2009, around the time when Simon Singh had a disastrous ruling in his libel case against the chiropractors, which we heard a tiny bit about earlier, that two things dawned on us. One was that if Simon, even if Simon won his case, he would still lose. That's because the state of the libel laws, as they currently are in the UK, means that all the burden of proof was on Simon. So what happened was Simon wrote a piece in The Guardian 
say that there's no evidence that chiropractic could be used to treat certain childhood conditions, including uh, colic, I think, and ash, childhood asthma and things like that. And the British Chiropractic Association, instead of taking up the offered right to reply and right to debate in the paper of the newspaper, sued him for the libel action. And he got dragged through the courts for years and years and he was disastrously out of pocket because of it. So in June 2008, there's a ruling in his case which meant that he would end up defending something that was actually not what he meant and which was indefensible. So it, when, we were, when we worked with Simon Arthur, I was working with Simon for years and facing down to the science and things like that. So when we were looking at this ruling and realizing that the libel laws are absolutely unfair, they're unbalanced, they're balanced against somebody who's had to defend their word. In the UK, about 90% of libel cases are won by claimants. They're very, very complicated. The laws haven't been, well, the laws have been recognised as being complicated and unfair and liable to cipher discussion since the 1920s. Nothing radical has been done to change them. In fact, only tweaks, small tweaks, middle patches have been added to the law since then, and that's made the laws even more complicated and confusing. And they're basically inaccessible to normal people. Because cases take an awful long time to argue about, they're very complicated. They're all heard in London, in this jurisdiction, or in England and Wales, this jurisdiction. So, and litigation costs are extremely high in London, and because they're so complicated, the lawyers are specialists and they go on for a long time. So all of these reasons mean that when you're facing a libel action, you're facing something that could cost you, that routinely costs people 500,000 pounds, that often costs a million pounds, and that could cost you a lot more than that. So, when Simon had this disastrous ruling, in his case a couple of years ago, and everybody expected him to back down, but he decided to fight on. And the second thing that we realized was, even the first thing, as I said, was even if he wouldn't be legal. The second thing was that the libel laws were really putting at risk everything we'd been working so hard for over the last eight years of the time to get scientists speaking up there, to get people getting out and responding to the science and tracking down evidence and talking about dietary practitioners and dodgy products and dodgy therapies was really at risk because of the libel laws. So we launched a campaign called Keep Libel Laws Out of Science in June 2009. And on the very day we launched that, on the very day we publicised that, there was a piece in the Telegraph in the morning uh, where a tennis commentator called Annabel Croft said that she used homeopathy to treat her ovarian cysts, which are a very serious disease. And we did what we usually do. We contacted our friends in broadcasting. We contacted the scientists we worked with. Oh, we got um, BBC Breakfast, I think, to have, some, to have a scientist on to respond to this. So we went through all our experts and thought, who could we have to do this? And we phoned down our list of normal suspects. And every one of them said, no, look what happened to Simon. I don't want to deal with this time. But we knew then that some, there was a problem that something had to be done. The scientists were scared. So we launched this campaign. We launched it um, a month after we heard about Simon's after ruling. We knew we had to make a splash. We knew we had to get a media splash out there. That's how we work an awful lot is getting things out into the media. Because as I said, that's how most people get their information about things, isn't it? So we went through our contact books and thought, who can we get to sign their names up to this before we even launch it so that thousands more people will sign up after it. So we planned to get 100 of the top names in science in the UK signed up. And we ended up having about 250 people, top names in science in the UK and internationally, as well as comedians and presenters and performers and historians and biographers and publishers and authors and human rights champions, politicians and lords, MPs and peers signed up to the campaign and all told us this was something they were concerned about as well. So there's some of the names here, and this is an ad that we had in Nature. Nature donated, donated us the page in their journal before we'd even launched this campaign, because it's something that they're concerned about as well. It's Nature, the leading science journal, concerned about the libel laws too. So we launched this 
lot of science campaign and very quickly 22,000 people signed up to it. Now unbeknownst to us at the same time, two freedom of speech organisations called English Pen and Index and Censorship were also looking at the libel laws from the perspective of journalists and authors and they wrote a report which they published in 2009 that year saying that England's libel laws are impacting on what, off what investigative journalists can write, what publishers can publish. And we joined up with them to form we joined up with them to form a reform campaign, which we launched in November 2009 at uh, an event that was packed in the Law Society, where some of these top names came along and told us why they think the libel laws need changing. So Dara Green here told us about his libel tourism um, agency, where he brings people from around the world to the UK and lets them use our laws. Alexi Sale told us about the time when he sued someone, so somebody said something damaging to Alexi. And he sued them, but it, again, it took him years and years to go through the courts, and he never got all his money back. And as he said, instead of using the libel laws, it would have been cheaper if he just stabbed the fucker. <laughs> <laughs> and scientists, um, I think you can see Roger Highfield, who's the editor of New Scientist, told us that their magazine, a science magazine, which reports the best science from all around the world, spends, I think we could figure it out, spends enough money to employ an extra journalist every year on libel checking things and on legal advice. So we. We, again, this is uh, something that was so important to us. So we launched a petition on that day, which we put up on a new website that we built, called libelreform.org. Um, the petition called for the government to bring forward a new bill to reform the libel laws to make them fairer and more up-to-date, and so, that they so to protect free speech. And as of this, as of the end of last year, we had 55,000 names signed up to it. The campaign really caught um, the imagination of an awful lot of people that we worked with. People did all sorts of things for us. A girl jumped out of an airplane to raise money for us. A group of science communicators put together a charity calendar. There's at least one person in this room who features in that, which made lots of money. And we put on um, the big libel gig in March of last year to raise awareness and to raise money. And some of the performers and comedians and scientists who were part of our campaign came along and supported us that day and did lots of media around this. So we had Dara Brain on BBC Breakfast saying why the libel laws need to be changed and mean so much to him. Uh, Marcus Brigstock did a rant about libel on the Now Show on the Friday before the gig, for example. So it was something that, that really caught um, celebrities, if you like, high-profile names, imagination. That was really useful for us, for getting us more media and for getting us coverage everywhere. But it was really the support of ordinary people that got us as far as we are, so fair where we are. Um, so every time someone signed up to the petition on the website, they also got the option of emailing a letter to their MP, so the system automatically found who their MP was, so they put in their postcode and wrote a letter saying, dear, name is my MP, and then a standard template letter saying, I want you to perform the libel law, sign up to this, can you do a motion in Parliament to do that? And we sent off thousands and thousands and thousands of letters to MPs, so it wasn't just now becoming a big issue for scientists and becoming an issue in the media is also become, uh, coming up the radar and coming on top of the pile of issues of importance for MPs. They were getting literally thousands of letters. Some of them got thousands and thousands of letters talking about this. And we arranged today in Parliament for supporters of ours to come down and lobby directly and personally to their own MPs. So we got lots of our supporters to write to their MPs. So then I'll meet you in the central lobby of Parliament at 3pm on this day. I was at a meeting beforehand and hundreds of people came along to the meeting. And it was a meeting at which Jack Straw, who was then the Secretary of State for Justice, the Ministry of Justice in the UK, told us was the largest public meeting that he'd ever seen in Parliament in all the years that he'd been there. So 
having all these people supporting the people active and having them, giving them things to do, so to write to their MPs, to come down and lobby their MPs, to donate to us, to raise money for us, all these different things, keeping people really, really engaged with us. And again, when ev everybody signed up to the website gets a new fairly regularly, as often as I can write it, from me, who's actually running the campaign, telling them what's going on and what's happening. So it was keeping everybody really, really engaged. It was really, really successful. <coughs> but the last general election, all three major parties put libel reform as one of their general election manifesto promises the parties. Then when the coalition government was formed, libel law reform to protect free speech was part of the coalition government agreement. Then last year, a peer in the House of Lords put down a bill to reform the libel laws, and that went to a debate in the House of Lords, and at that debate, there was then the Minister for Justice, Lord McNally, Tom McNally, announced that the government would be bringing forward a bill to reform the libel laws due in the new year this year. And then on Tuesday, on the 15th of March, the government published that bill, a draft bill to reform the libel law. So the first time in a century there's, there's now legislation in the pipeline that will reform the laws to make it fairer and to protect us all and to protect scientists speaking out, to protect biographers writing about people, to protect historians writing about history. It's been amazing. It's been absolutely amazing to be involved in a campaign that's gone from the, the reform of the laws being recognised as a problem but nobody do nothing about it 18 months ago to now actual legislation in the pipeline. And it's been because of the, the weight of people signed up to it and the weight of people behind it and all the letters that have been sent to MPs and all the lobbying in parliaments that we've been doing, going and meeting all the important people all the time. But that's not the only reason, I think. Well, before we started this campaign, I think the libel laws were seen as an issue for the media only, for the tabloid paper. When someone said, I'm suing you for libel, you would assume the person they're suing said something salacious. It was really an issue about celebrity sex lives and what people find in their liquor drawers and in the rubbish and that kind of thing. But when we started the campaign, all these different organisations signed up, all these civil society groups were telling us, it's a problem for me too. And that's the reason that MPs and, par and parliamentarians took notice of it. It wasn't just the media writing to them and saying, you have to change the laws because I can't write the stories I want to write about David Beckham. It was people like Amnesty and Global Witness saying, this is an issue for human rights campaigners. And it's people like the Society of Biology and the Physiological Society saying, this is affecting our members. We can't write and talk about what we want. And it's um, people like Fiona Godley, who's the editor of the BMJ, using her as an example. Editors of, in fact, all of the leading medical and science journals in the UK, and lots of international ones too, are telling us that they're spending a lot of money every week consulting lawyers. For every edition, they have to get a libel read now, and that costs a lot of money. They're telling us that there are actually papers, the BMJ has told us there are actually papers that they wanted to publish for scientific or editorial reasons that they weren't able to because their libel lawyers have warned them they could be libelous. Um, an example of that was a paper Fiona told us about, which was about nosebleeding being a potential sign of child abuse. And they couldn't print it because it was a series of case reports and it might potentially be identifiable. And they were worried about the consequences of that, so they actually didn't publish this important paper about potential signs of child abuse because of the libel laws. It's affecting um, consumer groups as well, which, and the Consumers Association, and this is an example of a uh, magazine that reviews technology products, digital technology pro consumer products, tell us that they're not, not always writing the full story, that they can't write things about the big companies, things they know are true, things they've tested and their experts have written or told them about, because they're at the risk of a libel suit. And one libel suit could fold a magazine, even as big as Wit, 
One libel suit could be that expensive and that disastrous that it could fold an entire magazine or even bring down a small publishing house. So it was the bravery of people like um, the science journal editors and the consumer editors who were speaking out about this. And brave because this is an issue about valuing yourself as an independent, um, impartial review magazine and saying, well, actually, we can't tell you the whole story. There's something really brave when people start saying that. We really appreciate that people were banding together and saying, yeah, it's happening to us too. And once the B&J said it, for example, other small journals kind of followed them behind. So it took champions like that, champions of the campaign, like Fiona Godley, the editor of the B&J, and the editor of Nature, and the people at which to say, this is a, um, impacting on us as well. And then other people sort of followed behind on that. So there are so many people being affected by the laws. And it's this plurality of voices that's so um, useful for the campaign and that's pushing it forward. You can see Professor Cahoon up here. He told us a little bit about the brush yet with the libel laws. But they're impacted on so many different parts of society. It's amazing. There's a book there, The Oxford History of Ireland, History of My Own Country. The editor of that, Lord Hugh, called the a historian, told us that that's incomplete. The Oxford History of Ireland is incomplete because of fear of the libel laws. He hasn't written about a specific something that was going on around the time of Bloody Sunday, something that's since been, that he knew was true, and has since been proved to be true after the Bloody Sunday inquiry report. But his publishers wanted to leave it out because they were scared of the libel laws. So the Oxford history of my country now is incomplete because of that. Um, you can see the ISPA there, that's the Internet Service Providers Association, that's the trade body of Internet Service Providers. So the trade associations for people like Google and Yahoo and AOL tell us that they particularly hate the laws because of the way publishing is defined. It's a very old definition, obviously. It hasn't kept up with the rise of the internet since the last reform of the laws was in 1996, when we didn't have Google, and we didn't have the blogging culture and the tweeting culture that we're hearing about today. So when they publish something and someone says it's libelous, it's the internet service provider who hosts it who can also be libelous. So they end up taking things down, as UCL took down in David's blog without knowing anything about it, without knowing the facts behind it. They are being put in the position of being judge and jury over content that they just know nothing about and are being forced to take it down. So they, the ISPA and Google and Yahoo and Facebook and AOL, wrote a letter to the Prime Minister a few months ago saying you have to change the laws. Because of these reasons, they haven't kept up and we're, uh, we're particularly vulnerable. So that helps the campaign as well. This lady in the white coat here is a surgeon called Dahlia Niels, who did what everybody would hope she would do. She was asked by the Daily Mail for her opinion about a cream called Boob Job, this cream that claims if you rub it, I think, 70 times on your breast, your boobs every day, that it will mobilize fat cells in different parts of your body and they will come to your boobs and make yourself, make you uh, half a cup size, half a cup size bigger. So she told the Daily Mail, well, there's no evidence of this, this hasn't been tested, the company hasn't provided any evidence of testing for safety or efficacy. So I don't think it works, and even if it did do what it said it would do, that would be really dangerous. We don't want fat cells traveling around your body, not knowing where they're going, that can kill you. So she wrote that, um, the Daily Mail published it in a review of these different creams, and then she was threatened with libel action by the manufacturers of the product. That's the Daily Mail with Dahlia. Then when we publicized the threat against Dahlia, we were threatened with libel action from the manufacturers of the product. We stood up to it, but it was absolutely terrifying to be in the office late at night and have a libel threat come through in my email. So now I have renewed, if I didn't before, I have enormous respect now for people like Simon and Ben Goldacre and David who've had this face these threats and face them down. It really is scary. 
the staff up here in the corner is Dr. Peter Wunthurst, who's a cardiologist who works in the Royal Shrewsbury Hospital. He was running a clinical trial for a heart patch device, and he spoke about the concerns he had about management of data coming out of that trial, clinical trial he was running at a conference in America. And guess what happened? The manufacturers of that medical device sued him for libel speaking out about concerns about the way the data in the clinical trial has been managed. He's been dragged through the courts for the last four years now, and it's cost him hundreds of thousands of pounds, which he may never get back. The Thyroid Association are up there representing patient groups. We at Sensible Science work an awful lot with patient groups. <laughs> um, and the rise of the internet has led to this rise, as Rita was telling us earlier, of online support groups, where anybody who, you know, when you end up with this diagnosis of a disease, the first thing you do is what any one of us would do, we Google it and see what other people are saying, what other people have gone through. Then a couple of places, not the thyroid associations, um, respect them to say, but a couple of patient groups have told us that they have had to stop people talking about specific therapies and proven therapies because the manufacturers of those therapies have threatened to sue them for libel. So there are patient groups now who aren't allowed to discuss amongst themselves certain alternative therapies because they're at risk of a libel action. This goes really wide, it goes all around society, and I think that's the reason this campaign has been so successful and the government has brought its bill out last week. It's because of this plurality of voices. As I said before, this was kind of seen as a media issue for ages, and people are still saying this is a media campaign. So you know, liberalising the libel laws will help the media to write different things as well. But it's having all these different people, having the Publishers Association and Mumsnet and consumer groups and patient groups and science editors and historians and biographers behind us that have made this campaign so successful. And it's, the reason, and it's why we're going to keep doing it, because scientists have to be able to stand up and talk about things. People like Reese have to be able to chase down the frauds and the patient groups outside. The people like David have to keep investigating and talking about these kind of things. We realised this recently when we put together um, a publication with patient groups called I've Got Nothing to Lose by Trying It, which is about addressing just that, about helping people make sense of dodgy treatments and therapies on the internet. We worked with neurological authorities to do this because they came and told us they were really worried about um, unproven therapies, especially things like goat's blood serum being promoted for MS and unproven stem cell therapies being promoted for MS as well. And um, which mirrors really closely something we told us earlier, people are promoting those therapies and going on their patient forums, pretending to be patients and saying, I tried this and it worked for me. And you know, the patients just had no way, no tools to hand, nothing that they could use to help them make sense of it. So that's where we put this document together with experts on this. And we are still realizing the kind of impact this kind of thing has and how standing up for science and getting out there and talking helps people so much. It doesn't just help the patients themselves make sense of which therapy to use. It helps them to have tools at hand when other people come and encourage them to use something. People have told us that they can kind of decide whether what to use and what not to use themselves, but it's when their colleagues email them links to dodgy things. People come at them over the fence on a Sunday with something clipped in the newspapers. They, they just can't make sense of it. It's good to have, some, it's good to have scientists there speaking out and talking about this to hand to help them. Because as the husband of an MS sufferer told us, he, when his wife, who's now dead, got MS, they didn't have access to this kind of thing. They didn't have access to people blogging about science and trying to explain how to make sense of unproven treatments and therapies and not. And they ended up spending thousands of pounds in the last couple of months of her life traveling to Rotterdam and then to the Seychelles and different places to try these strange stem cell treatments. 
and that he said, I wish we'd spent more time and money together on this holiday together instead of going around the world chasing false hope. So that's why we're doing that. Thank you.